you would, turn to the Bible to the book of Zechariah, the second to last book in the Old Testament. <clears throat> We're in the Minor Prophets, and we have been there now uh, for a long time. We're going to be continuing on in the book of Zechariah. If you can find the New Testament and the Gospel of Matthew, go backwards one. You've got Malachi. Go backwards one more, and you've got Zechariah, and that's where we're at. We've been in Zechariah for several weeks because Easter weekend, we preached from Zechariah, and Palm Sunday, the weekend before Easter, we were in Zechariah. And even before that, we started it. Now we're past all of those holiday-type stuff, and uh, here we are pushing through the book, and we've gotten to a, a heavy part because there are all these visions. God is giving Zechariah visions, and sometimes that's hard for us to understand. Stand. Today is the second vision. Last week was the first vision, and I said a few things about that. It appears that all eight of these visions that are just one after another happen in one night. And it really appears that they're not dreams that he was awake. God is showing him this. A little bit of a difference between a, a dream while you're asleep and a vision while you're awake, and that's what it appears to be. I said last week that we're not all that familiar with visions, they're not very common uh, with us, and so we often think that they're weird, and so what happens to a lot of uh, modern readers like me or you is we come to this and we think that's so weird that we just dismiss it and we don't really try to understand it, but if we'll look a little bit deeper, we'll see it's not as complicated as we think it is just from hearing that it's a vision. I also want to remind you that God wrote his word a long time ago, and we are to understand it as the word of God, and so what God writes, we know is best for us, and so even though it's a vision that we may not understand, or may not think that we understand, God wants us to understand it, and so we're committed to it, and we're going to seek to know it. Our vision last week was of a horseman, Zechariah is interacting with this guy that's riding a horse. And then this angel that is talking to him and explaining what that is. And the vision showed us that God has horsemen on patrol that go out through all the earth and patrol the earth. It was an interesting vision. And uh, what the patrol found is that the world that doesn't know God is at ease. And the people of God, the people of Israel during this time are in exile being oppressed and they're not at ease. They were frustrated over that, and God reminded them that he knew, and God reminded them that he cared, and that he was going to reverse that. Well, our vision today picks up right with that and speaks a little bit further to it. It speaks of why uh, God's people are uh, in exile. It speaks of why they're not prospering. It speaks of why God and his work is being opposed and then it speaks to that God is doing something about it. It's a huge comfort to us. The second vision is a short one, but it is one that we can learn something from if we'll look to it. You know, the truth is, throughout all of history, there are those that receive, accept, and support the work of ministry of what God's doing, and there are those that reject and oppose it. You know this, right? It's just the honest truth of the way people, here or there, near or far, receive the truth. There's an organization called the World Watch List, in which they keep an eye and keep account of what's happening in the world. On the 2019 reports, 
They report the top 50 countries in the world where it is dangerous to be a Christian. The top 50 countries in the world where it is dangerous to be a Christian. They reported that in 2018, they know of 1,266 church buildings attacked. They reported that they know of 2,635 believers that were detained, not given a trial, arrested, and placed in prison for being followers of Jesus. They have a count of 4,136 professing Christians that were killed in the last year simply for being Christian. That equals 11 a day. It's hard to remember that if you haven't thought about it lately, right? Hard to remember that, but that's the way it is. And I know our tendency, because we don't know that much about what's going on in other parts of the world, is to not think about that. And then I know our tendency really is when somebody says something like I just said is to think, well, that's the rest of the world that's so jacked up. But I want to remind you that here, too, we have people, maybe not that violent, maybe so, I'm not sure, I don't know everybody's motive, but there's a whole lot of opposition here to Christianity. I have been asked to do plenty of funerals as long as I won't preach, I've been asked to do plenty of funerals as long as I won't use the Bible. And I've been in many homes where the hospice chaplain has come in without the mention of God or no prayer or no Bible or nothing. I did remind the families, or I do remind the families, it's really hard to comfort somebody without God. I want to remind you here today that there is no comfort in life or in death without God. Hard truth to consider, deep to consider. The Bible wants us to know that people have and always will oppose God. And while that at times can be overwhelming and discouraging, we are to remember that God is the driving force of all that is being done in the world and he cannot be stopped. And so at times when it looks like God and his work is being opposed, we are to be reminded that when God sees fit, he even overcomes the opposition. In our midweek Bible studies, we have been studying the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. But what you've got to know is that Corinth is a city in southern Greece. Y'all know about Greece. And there, there used to not be any Christians. There were no believers there. There was no church. And the book of Acts tells us a historical account of when Paul traveled to Corinth and started to preach. And the Bible says that nobody believed, that they rejected him, they made fun of him, that he preached in the synagogue where the Jews were, and because he did that, they killed the ruler of the synagogue, who wasn't even a believer. They killed him. There was much opposition. But then finally, after rejection and all of that, the Bible says that a whole family and two other people listened to Paul and believed in Corinth. And you had the very first Christians in Corinth. And then the Bible says that God gave Paul a vision where God spoke to him. This is in Acts 18. 
where God spoke to him and said, Paul, I've got many more that I'm going to save in Corinth. Keep doing it. Keep preaching and teaching. And the Bible says that Paul stayed for 18 more months in the midst of opposition and rejection and many that didn't believe because God was saving more and more and more. And while that's a story from 2,000 years ago, it's very similar to what's happening everywhere in the world today, some more and some less. In Fairdale, if you wanted, we could talk about a lot of different families or neighborhoods or streets or groups of kids or whatever that, that we know where God's really working. I know kids right now that are thinking about uh, following Christ. I know kids right now that are new believers. I know people right now that are in Bible studies right now and moving toward getting baptized and those sorts of things. And I could tell you about also about a whole lot that aren't and really don't want to. The opposition is real. I'll never forget years ago when I was youth pastor and I used to ride around everywhere and just try to, try to meet kids if I could. And I'll never forget, I met this kid at a basketball court and he said, I'd like to go to church with you. I said, okay, well, we need to go ask your parents. Teenage boy, I think he's about 14. I said, okay. So he ran home to, and I, I followed him to where his house was and I didn't take him in my car without meeting his parents, nothing crazy like that. I followed him and he said, Dad, this is Josh. I just met him. Can I go to church with him? Right there to my face after shaking hands and introducing, he said, no. He's not going to go to church with you. We don't do church, and I'm not going to let him go to church. It's not the first time that's happened. Just the other day, a boy that's been on my uh, baseball teams, I've coached him and coached uh, and interacted with his mom, was riding his bike through the church parking lot, and I asked him, would he like to stay for church? And he said, no, me and my family don't do church. When you're like eight or nine, 10 years old, you haven't made those big decisions. You haven't really thought about that. Somebody has influenced him in that direction. We could go on and on with those stories right here. Perhaps there's some of those in your family. My point is, is there, there is a lot of opposition to Christianity, always has been, always will the expository commentary says this, Zechariah's second vision, the one we're about to read, portrays a great reversal in which the foreign nations responsible for scattering in exile the northern and southern kingdoms will have their power removed and will no longer oppress God's people. You and I are to know that God can and will stop the opposition when he sees fit. And the believers are called in the midst of all of it, whether it's easy or whether it's hard, to be faithful. Read with me, if you will, from Zechariah chapter one, beginning in verse 18. And I, that's Zechariah, lifted my eyes and saw, behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? He said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. That's the second vision. Not a whole lot there. but We need to look at it. I wanna remind you and encourage you, we saw this with the first one, we see this all the time, that not only do we 
first read this and think, what is this talking about? But Zechariah saw this and said, what is this, right? Two times in our passage, he says, what are these? He doesn't understand it either. He is seeking to understand what this means. He is seeking the Lord to understand what this is all about. And so uh, the angel that is talking with him uh, reveals it. There are really two things here today, the horns and the craftsmen, four of each. Four horns and four craftsmen. He looks up, he sees, behold, four horns. He asks, what are these? And he tells him. Well, a horn can be a couple different things, right? A horn can be uh, uh, the big thing that comes out of an animal. A horn can be an instrument that you blow. A horn can be representative of military and battle Specifically, maybe off of an animal that maybe a king or you think of a Viking and something that he wears on his head. A weapon that's made out of an animal's horn. Number four is significant in the Bible and can mean a couple different things. But I, in general, like to think of the number four as meaning everything. Four kind of points us to our directions of north, south, east, and west, and kind of gets us thinking that it's everywhere. In the book of Revelation, you have the four living creatures, and I really think that to mean that creation representing everywhere, all of creation. These four horns here are representing something that is scattering Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. That's the angel's answer in verse 19. Look at that. He says, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. I think that we are to take this as these are the nations throughout history that God has used, raised up to judge his people. We've been in the minor prophets now for a long time, and we have seen because of the disobedience of God's people, God saying to them, if you disobey me, then I'm going to judge you. And the way God judges them is God allows a foreign nation to be raised up to attack them, overtake them, oppress them, all of that, take them into exile. Now notice, let's be careful, that it does not directly name any countries here. But we do know that Babylon and Assyria and Egypt, and we could go on and on, Edom and Ammon and Philistia. We do know of these nations that we've seen in the Bible that God has allowed them to rise up and attack his people and tear down the temple and do all of that. And so what he's seeing here in this beginning of the vision are four horns that represent those nations, represents the uh, people and places and countries that have attacked God's people and torn them down. Now let's remember, this happens. That's what I opened up with, this happens. We can think of places in the world right now where people are trying to stop Christianity. One of the email groups that I'm a part of I just read it this morning, it either came through last night or this morning, from a country in the world, just told us of the police coming into their Bible study meeting and interrogating them. And they happen to know a believer that is a police officer in this country, who they went and asked afterward, hey, what was all that about? And their answer was, they've got their eye on you. Nothing horrible yet, 
No arrests, no uh, killings or anything like that, but they've got their eye on you. There are places in the world where that sort of thing is happening. If we look back to the history of the people of Israel, we know that right now, God's people are in exile. They're without a temple. They seem to have no identity. And you remember back from Haggai, remember I already told you that the previous minor prophet Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. They're talking to the same people about the same things. And remember in Haggai, the very issue was, why aren't y'all rebuilding the temple, right? The temple's torn down, and why aren't, why aren't you rebuilding? And remember, God talked to them about their priorities. You need to go get wood and rebuild the temple. So that sort of a thing is going on. Their identity is really struggling here. And in his vision, he's seeing the ones that have created that. You and I, thinking about our context here today, need to know who are for, really for God. We need to know who is against God. We need to be able to draw lines when lines are necessary, and we need to be able to understand who's on our side and who's not on our our side. We need to understand what's moving in the right direction and what's not moving us in the right direction. And in Zechariah's first vision here of the four horns, he sees those that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Do you remember in the book of Acts when God saved Saul? You remember that? He was on the road to Damascus, the Damascus Road experience. He blinded him and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul is then reborn, made new, becomes a follower of Christ. But do you remember that what happens after that is as Paul began to be a worker for the gospel and Paul began to be a part of the church, that everybody looked at him like, I don't think so. We know who you are. We know how you've been. We're standoffish from you. We don't know if you can, we can trust you. We're to get this sort of mindset here with Zechariah. Zechariah's vision. He sees four horns that represent the people and places and powers, if you will, in the world that have been opposing God's people, that have been opposing God's work. They are the ones that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Beyond that, you and I are to be reminded here this morning that Jesus himself tells us that the devil is alive and well, working to destroy us. The devil is alive and well looking at your family and looking at your life and looking at your relationships that he might still kill and destroy you. The opposition is real. If you think there is no opposition, then you're fooling yourselves. You think we don't need to be aware and mindful and identify it, then we're fooling ourselves. The first vision here of the horns brings that to mind. But right after that, in verse 20, you'll see, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Okay, so it, it goes along with the four horns. And I said, what are these coming to do? So he sees them coming. He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head, and these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. 
Now, these craftsmen, I believe, are the very thing that God is saying that he has raised up now to counter and go against the opposition. These are the ones who respond back or fight back or stay faithful. In particular here, the rebuilding of the temple. We have God's people longing for that identity, longing for that place, longing for that representation that God is with us. He is our peace. He is our strength. Here's where we worship. Here's where we identify as the people of God. This is our temple, and it's to be rebuilt. We have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we have the stories of God's people being led under the reign of Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. In so many ways, I think this craftsman is speaking to builders. If you were to do a study of the word craftsman throughout the Old Testament, way more often than not, the majority of the time that the word craftsman used, it's referring to builders, workers, carpenters, construction, that sort of a thing. And here, I think it's God answering back We can identify opposition to the work of God, but we can also also identify past or beyond or against the opposition, those working in favor of the work of God. Now, I gotta admit that if you start really studying this and you get into church history, one thing you find is that because it says at the very beginning there, these are the horns that scattered Judah, some people think that that's referring to the craftsmen as well. And so there are a lot of people that think the craftsmen are not believers either, but they're just countering the counter. And so it's this idea of the world being at odds, and even though they're trying to stop this, they're trying to stop this, and there's all this uh, opposition to each other so that God sees the world messing itself up. But I think, because it says here, these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter, I think that the craftsmen in general are just God saying, even with all the opposition that there is, God has a plan to keep his salvation going. We do know that in the midst of all of the opposing of the work of God, and all the scattering of the people, and all the exile that we read about in the Old Testament, we do know that the temple was rebuilt. We do know that even though there are many, many countries today that it is illegal to be a Christian, illegal, you will be killed if you come to Christ. Countries like that in the world now, we do know that even in those places, there are people coming to faith in Christ. We rejoice at that. So I think we are to understand the horns in the vision as those who are opposing the work of God, and we are to see the craftsmen as those that God has raised up to promote the work of God. Look what it says. These have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. One commentary says, the craftsmen will do to the horns what the horns have done to the people of Israel, bring them into subjection. Now we do know that as we study the history of God and what God's doing in the providence of God, we see God doing this. God is in control, and even when he is allowing his plan to be pushed back against or even hindered, if you can even say that, that God is the sovereign one in control and he will reverse it when he sees fit. Even as we read today in our call to worship from Psalm 89, 
we know that God had sent the punishment. He said, if you obey me, I will punish you, and he allows that. But then he comes back and he says, but I will not break my covenant. So what I promised you I will do, I will do just the way that it's going to come to pass. It may not be the way that you thought it. I may allow a Babylon to come and tear down the temple and destroy so much of the work of God. I may allow you to go through season after season of discouragement and loss because of your waywardness, because of your disobedience, but it doesn't mean that my ultimate plan is not going to happen. We see this sort of thing here. It reminds me in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress as Christian presses on and he sees many believers or what were thought to be believers going away from the kingdom of God. They're running backwards and Christians taken back. Like why in the world are y'all stopping going toward heaven, the celestial city? And they say, oh, there are lions up there. They're gonna devour us. They are stopping anybody that goes that way. We are not going that way. And Christian says, hey, I know it may be awful going that way, but if you turn around and go that way, you're going straight to hell. And they say, well, we don't really know what's that way, but we're definitely not going that way. There are lions up there and they will kill us. He says, what if a lion kills you? It's better than going to hell. They said, no, we're not going that way. And Christian says, I'll never turn back. And Christian and Pilgrim's Progress keeps going. And when he finally gets to the lions, you know what he finds? That on the straight and narrow, there are lions. But those lions are on chains. And when the lions come as far as they want on the chains, it's only about to there. And as Christian keeps his eyes on Jesus, the lions can't get to him. They're there. They're scary. They're real. If he steps this way a little bit, they'll eat him up. If he steps this way, they'll eat him up. But as long as his eyes are on Jesus, the lions aren't able to. As I hear about the horns and their scattering of God's people, and I hear about the craftsmen, them fighting back against the horns who are scattering God's people and opposing them, I'm reminded that God is the God of salvation. How are we to take this? Again, this serves as a great encouragement to do God's work today. Knowing that God works powerfully in and through his people, often in spite of our inadequacies. When Paul was preaching in Corinth, many, many, many would have thought, man, these people are messed up. We shouldn't stay here, let's go somewhere else. But God spoke up and said to Paul, no, I have many more here, keep going. The opposition, the rejection, the persecution wasn't a reason to stop. Oftentimes, in many of the places where we thought nothing's happening there, the willingness to stick with it or press on is later found to see fruit down the road. What one would have thought early on, God's not working here, one realizes later on, he's been working all along. Sometimes we can't recognize the work of God because we don't see fruits as fast. We're to think about all of these things in just these visions that Zechariah has. <coughs> God raises up craftsmen to terrify those who are opposing the work of God. God has raised up craftsmen to go against those that go against the work of God. We are to think about this as an encouragement. I wanna ask you a few questions. Are you able to identify the work of God? Are you able to separate the difference between 
just good in the world and what it's truly about God? Have we taught you well enough, discipled you far enough? Have I pastored you enough that you understand that the word of God and the gospel of Jesus are the key, the foundation, and the cornerstone for all true ministry, discipleship, work, and spirituality? That if it's not about loving Jesus and bowing our knee to him and believing in him and Lord and turning away from our sins, our sins and living in repentance, then it doesn't look like the work of God. That we are hardly motivational speakers, that we are hardly just those trying to do the best good in the world, but we are those who are trying to point people to the living Christ who died for their sins. We're trying to help people be reconciled to God. Are you aware, have you been reminded yet again that Jesus said, if they hate me, they also will hate you? This is a reality in the world. It's not always the case. Not everybody out there hates you, but it is possible that in the world, even in your family, even with your friends, a commitment to Christ and truth and the ways of God may meet opposition. It may deal with difficulty, that you may be in relationships with people who are growing further and further away from God. People that you used to talk with and connect with now may not love Jesus, may not follow him. They do not believe the Bible and you realize how difficult that is. Are you able and willing and ready to say, I follow Christ. I believe his word. His power is working in me. I know that he loves me. I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that forgiveness is a real thing. And after identifying those sorts of things, Will you consider whether you're working for or against the cause of Christ? Do you call people to repentance even if it's your children? You tell people to turn to Jesus even if you're afraid it may splinter the friendship? Do you love the truth of God? Are you helping or hurting the cause of Christ? Are you helping or hurting Christ's church? Have you thought about that? Zechariah's prophecy paints for us a very huge picture that both of those things are going on in the world. There are people out there that oppose the work of God. There are people out there that oppose those opposing the work of God. The Bible says that evil is represented as darkness. And it's a dark world that we live in. But the Bible says that the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And then he tells his people that they are the light of the world. Are you able to think about what it means to be light in the darkness? Are you okay with being light in the darkness? You understand that the darkness really, really wants to put out the light. Zechariah's second vision is to get us thinking about these things. And our reading from in the middle of the service today was from Romans 16. And I want you to hear this again now in this context. Austin Hammond said this past Sunday night that Romans is the greatest theological book ever written. Many people say that. 
It's long. It's 16 chapters. It's a letter from Paul to the church in Rome. And here's how he ends this great work. It's the very, very end of it. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. That's the Bible telling us how to relate to people that oppose the truth of Jesus. For such persons do not serve our Lord, Lord Christ. They say they do, but they don't. They serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So there's a, a message to us to be opposed to it. Verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good, and I want you to be innocent as to what is evil. You need to be aware of this. You need to pray, seek, grow in the word. You need to be involved in your church, whether you don't think you need to be involved in your church. You need to grow in relationships that will increase the wisdom of God, and grow in relationships that will increase the awareness of the evil that's being done in the world. You need to grow as a representative of God in the world that stands for truth and goodness, for the glory of God, so that you also are being opposed to those that aren't. And if nobody does anything or nobody says anything, then it doesn't mean good's advancing. It means evil is because the world is under a curse because of sin. But after he tells that to them in Romans 16, he says this great verse in Romans 16, 20, he talks about it from the perspective of God. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Which means that God had not yet crushed Satan under their feet. Which means that God is going to one day crush Satan under their feet. But the church in Rome and the church today is to be living in that moment of it is rough out here. Satan is alive and well. He's on the attack and there's discouragement this direction and discouragement this direction. But God is in control. The four horns say that the work of God is being opposed and scattered. But the four craftsmen say God has a work to go against that. It's very real. And the less and less I preach on stuff like this, the less we tend to think about it. And if you're not reading your Bibles at home, then you've probably never thought about that. It matters. You know how many times you've known a kid that was a good kid, man? He was a cute boy. He loved his school pictures. He played t-ball or little league or soccer or something. He was great, man. Made good grades in school, and you've got so many great memories. There was no real gospel influence in his life. I don't mean invite to church. I don't mean play with him in the yard. I mean there was no lordship of Jesus real influence in his life. Here's what we do. Here's what we don't do. Here's why we don't do it. Here's why we do do it. And you ever seen that person grow up and turn to be 18, 25, 30, 40, and you think, man, I, I don't know what happened. I'm gonna tell you what happened. They did not know Jesus. They did not know the truth of God. They did not know that God's truth is the answer. Now, I'm not saying it's our fault. I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm saying that's what's happening. The only answer to the world and to our sin problem is Jesus. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. 
that he rose again, and if anybody would turn to him asking for forgiveness, he will do a miracle work inside of them that changes who they are. It changes what they're about. It changes what they love. It changes what they hate. And this salvation work is what God does, and every human being is either for it or against it. And I don't mean that you're holding up a sign that says, I'm Christian and I'm for Jesus. And I don't mean that you're holding up a sign that says, I'm not Christian, I'm an atheist, and I'm not. I don't mean that. I mean by your wholeness, all of what you are. The way you react to the news on a Friday night, the way you deal with a neighbor that's a jerk, the way you deal with shortcomings, the way you handle adversity, the way you love, the way you serve. I mean, every single thing about you is speaking to whether your heart loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And every single thing about you is speaking to whether your heart loves the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it does or whether it doesn't. And the work of that in the world is a constant, a million times a million, pushing and pointing people in one direction or another. And Zechariah's vision recalls that. I want to end with a very, very sensitive situation here. This is an indigenous missionary. This is a person in a closed country that is there working and meeting all sorts of opposition. I cannot tell you her name and I cannot tell you where she is, but she's sending these highly secure emails back to some believers that pray for her here. Like every word in here is cut out. If it's the word Lord, it's just L space space D. If it's Jesus, it's just a J. It's awesome. I want to read a lot from her and we'll end with this. About two and a half weeks ago, I felt a tugging on my heart to go into the blank, blank square after work, the city area where people hang out. It was probably the Lord compelling me to go. Now, every time you hear me say Lord or Jesus or something like that, she doesn't even have this written here. I'm just reading it for you. In the past, I've always avoided to hand out tracts or have spiritual conversations on the street in one of those populated places and traffic centers here in my country, like the blank, blank square for security purposes. Yet in God's providence that evening, I met a group of five young ladies at the square. These ladies came from different places and towns in our country, but they're all living in one apartment. They call it the girls' dorm. I have shared the gospel with them, and somehow they became very interested in how I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. After these young ladies heard my salvation and testimony, they were moved, and they really wanted to meet wanted me to meet their other friends and roommates, so they invited me to go to their, their room, their house with me that night. In the past, I had shared with many people in our country through street witnessing and personal conversations, but never ever had any strangers on the street invited me to go to their home after they heard the gospel for the first time. I believe this is what our Lord had planned. After I went to the girls' dorm that night, I was so amazed to see the all, all the young ladies living in that one apartment. More than 30 ladies from age 16 to 25 are living in that one apartment, this one four-bedroom apartment. There are four bunk beds in each room of the four bedrooms, two bunk beds in the living room. It's very crowded, but also much cheaper to live there than compared to other apartments in our country. It only costs about $1 a day per person to live there. That includes rent, that includes water, that includes electricity, and everything else. Some girls would only stay there for a few days, some for several weeks, and others for several months, depending on their job situation. They do not have to sign any contract to live there. I had never heard about a place or an apartment like this before in my country. After I went in there, these five ladies I met at the square introduced me to their roommates and I told them that I am a Christian. After hearing my testimony in a brief version, all these girls gathered around me because they were so very curious. 
They had never, ever heard the teaching of our Lord before. One young lady came up to me and asked loudly, could you please tell us more about Christianity? These verses in the book of Isaiah came to, started flowing to my mind, and so I started sharing them with them. She goes through Isaiah chapter one, Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah chapter 55, she goes on and on. She said, I explained to them that, the, that it's only in Jesus that we could find true forgiveness, prosperity, contentment, peace, and fullness of life. They asked many other questions. She goes on and on. I'm gonna read you now another email. Dearest sister, I thank our Father every time I think of you. I'm indebted to you in every way and I'm truly thankful for all your prayers. Thank you again for writing. I apologize for the delayed reply. I have to keep this short and be very careful at this time because I'm still being monitored. There's a great risk and cost to being a Christian here. I was taken into custody by the police and I had not been able to have any access to the outside world for the past 19 days. Long story short, on the evening of the 4th of July, the landlord came in to check on our girl's dorm unexpectedly. He has the key to that apartment and came in that night when the girls and I were having our discussion time together. The landlord thought we were having a house church meeting and immediately contacted his son. None of us knew that his son is a local police officer. After 15 minutes, several police officers showed up here and the situation became very serious. For me, we were just having a girls' discussion time together, but in their eyes, this was a house church meeting, which is totally banned here in this country. People are only allowed to worship or study or talk anything at a government-sponsored setting. All the girls were very scared the whole time. Later, I was forced to be taken away to, with the police officers to be interrogated. During the past weeks, they only let me eat one small bowl of rice every other day and they would not let me sleep at all. I probably have lost 10 pounds. I'm not sure how much I can share with you at this time because the police have seriously warned me not to tell anybody again about Christ. My experience in jail before they let me leave, it's already a miracle that they would let me leave this time. God has given me so much grace, wisdom, and strength when I was in there. I'm not allowed to share with anyone anything and they are probably still monitoring all of this communication. For security reasons, I probably won't be able to write to you for at least two more weeks. She goes on and on. I have 96 pages of emails here of her writing back saying, pray, pray, pray. But you know what she keeps saying in the midst of all of that? God is working here. If time would allow it, she starts to talk about those girls who have come to faith in Christ. She tells of one night where they all say, we're ready. And many of them start praying with her and reading the scripture. And she says she never tells them uh, that they're saved or not saved. She says coming out of the prayer, many of them jumped up and said, God just saved me. I'm saved now. I'm a follower of Christ. He's done that work inside of me. She says she has multiple girls there whose testimony is, I was going to commit suicide. I know I was going to commit suicide. I wanted to commit suicide. And in God's perfect timing, we met. I'm so thankful that you talked to us that day in the square. I'm so thankful that you came back to the apartment. Here's why I tell that story. These emails are loaded with opposition. Loaded with opposition. 
on an individual level, on a landlord level, on a family level, on a government level, on a national level, opposition to simple reading the Bible or talking about Jesus. But you know what's also loaded with? Hope that Christ is a savior. And testimony after testimony of God working. When we see Zechariah's second vision, It's a simple one of horns and craftsmen. The horns represent those that have opposed the people of God, scattered them in the building of the temple. The craftsmen represent that God has those still doing the work. Church, we need to be reminded that this is real life. There are people in and around who don't know the Lord, and we want to be about him. If you're here today and you've not committed yourself fully to Christ, do it. If you've not thought deeply about what your influence is, are you for him or against him, then may you think deeply like that. If you're ready to commit yourself to Christ, make that decision today. It'll be the best decision you ever made. He will not let you down. He's a good savior. This time we're gonna take the Lord's Supper and I'm gonna ask those that are gonna serve it if they would come forward.